Take your Bibles and turn them with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. If you're, uh, if you're close to my age or older, uh, you may remember the funeral of Princess Diana. It was a massive funeral. You had three million people either along the route of the processional or who passed by her casket, not including all the people who were watching uh, all over the world by television. Uh, the flowers outside Kensington Palace in London and, 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 uh, were in some places several feet high. That's a lot of flowers. That's a lot of honor and love and attention and adoration. And contrast that with the burial of Jesus Christ in that moment when it happened 2,000 years ago. There weren't millions of adoring people present. There weren't stacks upon stacks of flowers. The world wasn't riveted by His burial. In fact, it was barely a blip on the radar screen. Hardly anybody paid attention to it, and many times, even today, Christians don't pay it much mind. We focus a lot uh, on the death of Jesus, and we should, and we focus a lot on the resurrection of Jesus, and we should, but we tend to avoid spending much time considering the in-between moments. We glory in the cross because it is through the sufferings of Jesus that our salvation is accomplished, and we glory in the resurrection because it demonstrates the power of Jesus and gives us hope for our own future beyond the grave. But we tend not to think about that late Friday afternoon uh, during Passover week around 33 AD as Jesus' body is being taken down from the cross. We tend not to ponder that Saturday where Jesus' corpse lay in a cold, dark tomb. We don't like to think of Jesus as a corpse, but we need to. Because if Jesus wasn't really hanging lifeless on a cross… If a bloody and pierced Christ wasn't a reality, if His cold, lifeless body wasn't carried into a cave and sealed inside, then everything that we are doing this morning, everything that we celebrate and, uh, when we come together as a church, everything that we put our hope in is a sham. And our passage today is one that sometimes preachers are tempted to skip over, and I understand that temptation. There, there is this, there's this urge, there's, there's this pull to go straight from the cross to the resurrection. But the Apostle John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, doesn't go straight to the empty tomb. And since he doesn't, we won't either, because John wants us to show us, wants to show us some things that are for our benefit, for our encouragement, and to increase our faith. Indeed, even on our text today, John says in John 19:35, he who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may believe. So let's now hear together this testimony from a firsthand eyewitness to the death and burial of Jesus Christ. Please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our God. John 19, and we're going to start in verse 31 and read on down through the end of the chapter. And the Apostle John, that wonderful disciple whom Jesus loved, writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place about the that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your holy and inspired word, and we come to it with, with a sense of eager expectation, knowing full well that you will speak to us through it by your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would do that now, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> there are at least um, uh, three significant things that John wants us to see in our text this morning uh, that revolve around the, the death of Jesus. There are some things about Jesus' death that communicate important truths to us. And the first thing is that Jesus in his death proves that he was a real man who really died. Now, before we dive into the text, let, let's get the scene here. Jesus' enemies have finally gotten their way, right? The religious leaders who have been plotting and scheming against Jesus, they finally get the break that they've been looking for when one of Jesus' own disciples, Judas, betrays Jesus and turns him into the authorities. The Jewish leaders, led by Caiaphas, the high priest, convicts Jesus in an illegal trial and condemns him to death. And as we saw in chapters 18 and 19, they were able to manipulate the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, into giving, them, giving him the death sentence. And so in last week's message, we saw how Jesus was hung on a cross, mocked and despised, and yet unbeknownst to Jesus' enemies, he was simultaneously saving the world from sin. That's where we left off last week. In today's text, John now shows us the immediate aftermath of Jesus' death, starting in verse 31. It says, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Now, the day of preparation refers to the day preceding the Sabbath of Passover week. That would be Friday. And it would be before sunset, because sunset was when the Sabbath day would begin. And John tells us that the Sabbath was a high day. It was a special Sabbath. 
So it was a day that was considered especially holy because this Sabbath coincides with the Passover festival, one of the most significant holy days on the Jewish calendar. So we're looking at sometime Friday afternoon with the Sabbath probably just a few hours away. Now, the normal Roman practice was to leave a crucified man on the cross until they died. And sometimes it could take days for a person to die. And then after death, they would just leave the rotting bodies hanging there and vultures would devour them. But if for some reason they needed to hasten the death of their victims, uh, the soldiers would take an iron mallet and smash their legs, breaking their bones. And with broken legs, this would prevent the victim from pushing up with his legs to keep his chest cavity open, getting oxygen in. And so unable to breathe, asphyxiation soon followed. Point of interest, in 1968, archaeologists found the remains of a man who was crucified in the first century near Jerusalem, and wouldn't you know it, one of his shin bones was fractured, the other was totally shattered. This is, this is evidence of that practice. And this is what the Jews want done to Jesus and the men who hung with him. So look at the end of verse 31. It says, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Now, why? Why, why do they want that? Well, the first half of the verse tells you. It says, it was the day of preparation and that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. Now, what's the big deal about that? The big deal is Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. And you have this in the law of Moses. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Therefore, the possibility that Jesus could not just hang overnight, but on a Sabbath... And not just on a Sabbath, but on a special Sabbath during the Passover, this would have been doubly or triply offensive to the Jews. So they want his body down immediately so that they can properly observe the law of Moses. Is there not irony in that? Again, we see the amazing hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders on display. We've seen this before. Remember back in chapter 18, these men didn't want to enter into Pilate's house? Why? Because he was an unclean pagan Gentile, and they don't want to be defiled and prevented from eating the Passover meal. All the while, they are scheming and plotting to murder Jesus, a completely innocent man. And now here we have in chapter 19, these same Jewish leaders, they are so careful to obey this one obscure law in Deuteronomy 21. We can't leave his body up there. That wouldn't be right. And all the while, they are totally callous to the fact that the whole reason that man is hanging up there in the first place is because they engineered the murder of this innocent man. Their hands are covered with the blood of the Son of God, but boy, oh boy, sundown's coming, so we need to obey Deuteronomy 21. Never mind Deuteronomy 5.17, which says, you shall not murder. And we wonder how in the world could people be like that? But before you judge these people, I caution you to beware of religious hypocrisy in your own life and in my own life. One of the primary characteristics of legalistic hypocrites 
is that they'll find parts of the Bible that they are willing to obey, often small things, all the while neglecting other aspects of God's law. And so, for example, Jesus addresses this problem earlier in his ministry. He says this, "'Woe to you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness and the love of God.'" And this is the hallmark of religious legalistic hypocrisy. We can, in our selfishness, completely neglect loving God and loving our neighbor while feeling good about ourselves because, it, because at the same time, I do my devotions every day. Or because I embrace Calvinistic theology. Or because I, you fill in the blank with any particular way that you think God wants you to live, things that are explicitly in the Bible or things that are not, like homeschooling. And there are many that take pride in this in that particular practice, even though that's not a law of God. We need to be careful. You see, you can give others a pass, or you can give yourself a pass, I should say. You're not giving anyone else a pass. You're giving yourself a pass for your cold lovelessness towards others. You can gloss over the sins in your life because you feel like you're obeying God in another way. And that's not really obedience to God at all. Instead, we're using something we're doing over here that looks like obedience to God as a means to protect us from accountability about this area that we're disobedient in over here. And so challenge yourselves with this question. What is it in your life that you are tempted to use as a means to make it easier for you to gloss over other areas of your life where there is sin? That's a question worthy of prayerful consideration because the most dangerous place to be in the world is in a state of comfortable hypocrisy because you're capable of committing the most heinous sins with your right hand all the while easing your conscience because you're doing wonderful religious things with your left hand. And these religious leaders, in the aftermath of murder, find another way to make themselves feel better about themselves by strictly keeping the law of Moses. And so they request Pilate to help them to keep this law by speeding up the deaths of these men to get the body of these men down, down before the Sabbath. Again, so they can feel good about themselves. So they they can regard themselves as holy law keepers. And Pilate agrees to this request, verse 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. But notice, we see something interesting when the Roman soldiers get to Jesus, verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. That's interesting. That actually uh, seems to be a quicker than normal death. But he's already dead, and so they don't break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Now, what do we have here? What we have here is a verification of Jesus' death. The Apostle John is an eyewitness to this. That's why he says in verse 35, he who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth. In other words, John is saying, listen, guys, I was there. I was at the foot of the cross. I saw the soldiers break the legs of the other men. I saw them make the decision to not break Jesus' legs because Jesus really died. He was already gone. 
There was no need to break his legs. What's more, I saw another soldier provide additional verification by piercing Jesus' side with a spear, and that spear penetrated so deeply that this fluid is flowing out of Jesus' body. Now, there's some debate among medical experts regarding what was pierced in Jesus' body and the details about these fluids that came out of Jesus' side. We're not going to get into that today. I'll let you do some of that work on your own at home. I can't do everything for you. You guys can figure that one out, and you can tell me next week. How's that? But, but the details of this, the medical details, are not John's concern. As D.A. Carson writes, however the medical experts work this out, uh, there can be little doubt that the evangelist is emphasizing Jesus' death, his death as a man. Now, why is this significant? Why is it important to emphasize this? It's important to remember when John is writing this book. He is writing this probably some 50 years or so after the actual event. So he's probably writing this around 90 AD. And around that time, some significant false teachings about Jesus were on the rise and threatening sound doctrine in the church. In fact, uh, there were plenty of people willing to believe that Jesus wasn't really a man, that he really wasn't flesh and blood. Uh, that, that he just appeared to be a man, that he wasn't really a human being. He just seemed to be. That's an ancient heresy. It's known as docetism. It's, it's a Gnostic teaching, and the Gnostics believed that human flesh, this human flesh that was part of the material world, uh, everything in the material world was essentially evil. Uh, matter and flesh and bone and the earth and things that you could see and handle and touch, those things were corrupt. And so they believed that the goal of humanity was to escape the material world, to escape the body, to transcend matter because it's only the spiritual things that are good. Now that view is still around in, in, in various worldviews today. And the argument of the docetists was that if the material world is evil, then how can the pure Christ of God be actually material? How can he actually be flesh? How can he actually be a bone? How can he be able to really be touched and seen and handled? How can can he be able to die such a gruesome and horrifying death? And it's interesting because if you pay close attention to John's writings, he is consistently very concerned with underscoring the reality of Jesus' humanity, the fact that he's a real man. And so in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, John writes, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Christ became a man. And it's not just in the Gospel of John. You can look at his other writings, like in the tiny little book of 1 John, near the end of your Bibles. Again, written near the end of the first century with these false teachings about Jesus spreading. And and John writes this in 1 John chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it. You see, John is fighting back against this heretical view of docetism, and and he makes a big deal about the physicality of Jesus, the real, solid humanity of Jesus. The fact that John himself has been an eyewitness to this humanity, he makes a big deal about that. John writes in 1 John chapter 4, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not is the spirit 
of the Antichrist. There is something about denying the true flesh and blood humanity of Jesus that is so wicked that it is linked with the spirit of Antichrist. So going back to John 19, John gives us an eyewitness account of a flesh and blood man hanging on a cross, but more than that, a man who really died. And that's significant, because as important as it is for us to recognize that Jesus is a real man, it's just as important for us to know that Jesus really died that day. While some people deny the humanity of Jesus, others, while maybe admitting Jesus' humanity, may deny the resurrection of Christ by means of denying that He actually died on the cross. And really, that's the only way of explaining away all this evidence that we have that Jesus was alive three days after Good Friday if you're not going to believe in a resurrection. We've got an empty tomb. We, we, we have not long after that eyewitness testimony of hundreds of people seeing Jesus. We have the disciples actually sharing a meal with Jesus. Well, again, if you're going to throw out the idea of a bodily resurrection, which the ancient Gnostics certainly would do, then you have got to discredit Jesus' actual death on the cross. And this denial that Jesus died on Good Friday actually continues today. You would think that this is just common knowledge, that, that Jesus was executed on that Friday and, and died on a cross. It's, it's not uh, believed by everybody. Uh, we, for example, have talked before about what is known as the swoon theory, suggested by some scholars who say that Jesus really, he really didn't die on the cross, he just passed out. Uh, he, he was exhausted. He, he had lots of blood. Uh, he, was close to, he was close to death, but he wasn't really dead. He was almost dead. It, it reminds me, well, i got the princess bride going through my head here. Dead and really dead, different types of dead. Maybe, that, maybe that's where they're going with this, I don't know. That wasn't in my notes. All right. <laughs> that's why I have notes. You never know what's going to come out of my mouth, but sometimes even when I have notes. All right, so... Yeah, he wasn't really dead, uh, almost there, but when he was laid in the tomb, the coolness of the tomb, uh, uh, maybe the strong smell of those spices kind of aroused him, woke him up, and he came out on the third day. That's a, that's a theory that some say with a straight face, believe it or not. Our Muslim neighbors even deny that Jesus went to the cross at all. Uh, they say that God rescued Jesus at the last minute. Some say that it was Judas himself who went to the cross in that place of Jesus. Uh, that when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus in the confusion, in the darkness, somehow Jesus and Judas, they just switch places like a holy fake out. And in that moment, Judas decides to go along with it and dies for Jesus. How twisted is that? But who are we going to believe? Mohammed, who wrote the Quran centuries after the crucifixion, or scholars who indulge in speculation 2,000 years after the crucifixion, or the apostle John? a disciple of Jesus, Jesus' closest friend, somebody who's actually there. He was on the seam. He was at the foot of the cross. He was watching everything. John tells us that the one on the cross was Jesus, and he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. Indeed, John provides in this account the greatest expert witnesses to Jesus' death that anyone could give, and that's the Roman legionnaires who crucified him. They testify that Jesus really died. Again, we've got a choice. Who are you going to believe? Some ivory tower liberal theologian 
in the comfort of his classroom who says that Jesus just passed out on the cross, or hardened Roman soldiers who were experts in death, who have seen corpses of every kind, who, if they got it wrong, folks, if they botched an execution, they themselves would be executed by their superiors. There is no way that they're going to let this thing go to chance. They're not going to leave anything to chance. They are so certain of Jesus' death, they don't even take the time to break his legs. They, they look at him like, this, this guy is clearly gone. Another soldier thrust a spear into his side in case anyone needs additional evidence. By the way, if you're swooning, that's going to wake you up. Folks, these guys are killers. They know what they're doing. And they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was a real man who really died. And John tells us this because he wants us to know that. But secondly, John wants us to know that Jesus and his death fulfills Scripture. Everything that is happening here is the fulfillment of prophecy. And John has been banging this drum for quite a while now. You can go back up to uh, verse 24. It says, So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, his, his cloak, his, his garment, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the Scripture. Or, verse 28, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was finished, said, To fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. Or, verse 36, For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Or, verse 37, and again, another scripture that says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. John wants to underscore that the things that have happened to Jesus, even the things that are happening to Jesus after he dies, is all part of God's preordained plan. Nothing is by accident. Nothing is by chance. Jesus is not a poor, wretched victim caught up in out-of-control circumstances. Instead, all of this was clearly planned and clearly controlled by God Himself. These things written down hundreds of years before they actually took place. Jesus' enemies would want the cross to be a demonstration that Jesus was cursed and abandoned by God, and that they could point to the cross and say to their Jewish brethren, look at that poor wretch, cursed by God, pay him no regard, and do not follow him. But the Apostle John wants us to look at the cross and have a different reaction, to be amazed. Uh, we have seen in the preceding chapters this conspiracy on the part of Jesus' enemies to destroy him. But John is continuous, continuously reminding us of these Old Testament prophecies, and in doing so, he is showing us that, yes, the cross is the result of a conspiracy. Not as much a conspiracy engineered by men as much as it is a heavenly conspiracy. The Old Testament predicts the sufferings and death of the Messiah, and Jesus constantly referred to the Old Testament Scriptures, and He constantly predicted His death. God the Father and Jesus the Son conspired together to go to the cross. And while the Jewish leaders schemed to send Jesus to the cross to get rid of him once and for all and to remove his influence from the world, God the Father and God the Son planned 
the cross to save the world. Everything that is going on is going on according to plan, John shows us. All is happening according to the words that were written down hundreds of years in advance, and now it is all unfolding just like God said it would. So Jesus was a real man who really died. Jesus in his death fulfills Scripture. But more than that, Jesus in his death reveals his true identity. And it's interesting which particular scriptures John highlights here. Uh, They do turn out to be scriptures that demonstrate who Jesus really is. Uh, Look at verse 36. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. Now, what's he talking about there? What scripture is he referring to? I think it's quite possible here that that, uh, more than one scripture is being fulfilled in this moment. Consider, for example, Psalm 34:20, which I read at the beginning of the service, where David is writing about how God will preserve the righteous man and deliver him from affliction. And so David writes, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. The preservation of the bones is a way of saying that the crushing affliction that comes to the righteous will not totally overwhelm him and destroy him. It's not the promise of freedom from affliction, but it is the promise of ultimate preservation through the affliction. And that is exactly what's happening to Jesus. Jesus has went through affliction. He has been crushed and smitten and abandoned by God on the cross, but the preservation of his bones is a sign that the abandonment is not final. It isn't the end of the story. Yes, he was cursed by God when he bore our sins on the cross. And that's what the enemies of Jesus wanted to see, wanted the world to see. Jesus is one cursed and forsaken by God. But on the other hand, the preservation of the bones is telling us that God is going to deliver Jesus, and it is sending a message to the world. And it's the exact opposite of the message that Jesus' enemies wanted to get out about Jesus. But in the fulfillment of Psalm 34:20, the preservation of these bones is showing the world that Jesus is righteous. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, the psalmist writes, but the Lord will deliver him from them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Jesus is unblemished and pure and spotless like that Passover lamb in Exodus 12, 46. The lamb that would be sacrificed and consumed during the Passover celebration. And what is the Passover celebration? It is the great Jewish festival that commemorates the greatest moment in Israelite history, which is the deliverance of the Jews from slavery in Egypt. And how did God deliver Israel from bondage? He delivered them through a great act of judgment on sin. God's judgment would sweep through the land of Egypt and death would come to every home. And the only way to escape God's judgment was to sacrifice a lamb, to slaughter it, 
to smear its blood on the doorpost of that home so that when God's angel of death, that judgment angel, came to that home, the angel would see the shed blood of the lamb and he would not bring judgment to that home for their sins and he would instead pass over that home. Why? Because the shed blood was a sign that judgment had already come to that home. That death, that, that the death that was to be the judgment of God had already fallen upon the lamb that was slain on behalf of the people in that home as a substitute. And so every believing Jewish home was spared, but death came to every Egyptian household. And with their enemies devastated, the Jews were then set free from slavery, and God commanded his people to observe the Passover every year. And part of that observance would be the killing and the eating of that lamb. And so then God says this in Exodus 20, 12, 46, and you shall not break any of its bones. So if you've got that Old Testament background in your head, suddenly the gospel of John becomes all the more powerful, even from the very beginning, because the very quotation the apostle John writes down is, the, is in the first chapter of John, and it's a quotation from John the Baptist who upon seeing Jesus cries out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's Him. And then you get to chapter 13. It's the night before Jesus' crucifixion. And what's Jesus doing with His, pas- with his disciples? They're observing the Passover. And then in chapters 18 and 19, uh, you, you have at least five references to the Passover, five reminders about what time of year this is. They are observing the Passover. Passover is on everybody's mind. And in our text today, John connects the death of Jesus not just with the Passover festival, but with the Passover lamb itself when John says that these things took place, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. John is showing us that not only was the death of Jesus planned in advance, but it was planned that he would be the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover lamb He is the Lamb of God. The whole human race stands in judgment, stands in danger of the judgment of God because of our sin. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, physical death in this age and eternal spiritual death in hell after we die. And just like those Hebrews in the book of Exodus needed a sacrificial lamb to die on behalf of their households, else they experienced the death judgment themselves on that night. So we need a perfect sacrificial lamb to die on our behalf. Just like those Hebrews needed to apply the blood of the lamb to, the, to their doorpost to be saved, so we today need to, by faith, apply Jesus' blood to our own life. We need to trust in His sacrifice on the cross as sufficient payment for our sins. And when we do, the judgment of death passes over us, and His life counts as ours. And so, we don't have to fear God's judgment when we believe, because God's judgment has already fallen on the Lamb, on Jesus, for us. This is why it's so important that Jesus is really a man, and that he really died. We need Jesus to really be a man, because if he's not, he can't be man's substitute. All of the goats and bulls and lambs that were sacrificed in the Old Testament, 
Uh, They weren't the ultimate solution. Uh, They were temporary acts that pointed to Jesus, the true Lamb of God. And we really need Jesus to really die because if Jesus didn't die for our sins on the cross, that means the price for our sins hasn't been paid. That means that we will have to pay them ourselves forever. If the docetists are right in saying that Jesus only appeared to be a man, and if our Muslim neighbors are right in saying that Jesus didn't die on the cross at all, then we're all doomed. There is no hope. But because Jesus is both a real man and the real sacrificial lamb of God who died in our place, we have the greatest hope of all. But there's more. We know Jesus is a man. And we know Jesus is the lamb. But the Apostle John reaches back to yet another Old Testament Scripture that also tells us something about the identity of Christ. Look back at verse 36 again. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Now, that other Scripture reference is Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And the fascinating thing about this Scripture is that it actually identifies the one who is pierced. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, the one who is talking is God Himself. And God says in Zechariah 12, 10, when they look on Me, on Him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for Him. So in Zechariah 12, God identifies Himself as the pierced one. And the Apostle John in John 19 tells us that this Scripture is fulfilled in the piercing of Jesus. So who is pierced, God or Jesus? The answer is yes. Now, if you're new to the Bible and to Christianity, you should know that the Bible teaches that there's only one God, and that this one God exists as three persons, God the Father, God the Son, that's Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. And John Connecting the piercing of God in Zechariah 12 and the piercing of Jesus in John 19 shows us that Christ and God are one. And so we discover that not only is Jesus really a man, and not only is Jesus really the Lamb, but Jesus is also really God. The one who has come to suffer, to die, to be pierced on our behalf is none other than God Himself. God did not recruit some poor human soul to go and die for you. God didn't let somebody else do the dirty work. He didn't even turn to an angel and say, you go do it, poor sucker. He didn't do that. God did it himself. He did the dirty work himself. That's why during Christmas time, what do we sing? We sing, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Not simply some man not some prophet, not some angel, but the Lord has come as the prophet Isaiah foretold, behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. You see, friends, we need a sacrifice who is both man and God because only a man can pay the price for man's sins. 
But no mere man can pay for sins because all mere men are sinners themselves. And so what we need is a a man, but not one who is only a man. We need God Himself, who is without sin, totally pure, totally perfect, totally without blemish, a holy man who has no debt of his own, so he can pay for ours, and a God who is infinite, who can, in a moment's time on the cross, absorb the infinite wrath of God for our sins on behalf of us in a single Friday afternoon. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians drills down to the heart of what happened on the cross when he says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so on the cross, a great exchange, a great transaction occurs between Jesus and man. If Christ was really a man who really died that Friday afternoon, that's good news because it's proof that 2 Corinthians 5.21 is true. It's proof that he became sin. It's proof that our sin was put to his account because nothing else could have killed him. And this is why, brothers and sisters, it matters that Jesus was a corpse. We are so used to the idea of Jesus hanging on the cross, we can handle that, and we are so thrilled about the empty tomb and we revel in that, but we tend to overlook the importance of the fact that a dead body was taken down off of that cross and was growing colder by the minute. If somebody had an EKG machine and would have hooked it up to him, you would have seen a flat line. Jesus was really dead, and everybody knew it. Our text goes on to say that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they took that corpse, and they put this heavy weight of spices on the body, 75 pounds, wrapping that body up in linen cloths, even the face being covered. Nobody who merely fainted and passed out would survive all this treatment. Jesus was dead. If you're reading this gospel for the first time, this seems to be as final as you can get. That body is laid in that tomb. That heavy stone is rolled in front of the entrance, sealing it. John has told you in about as many ways possible that the hero of this book is now dead. And that's glorious news. Because his death provides believers with assurance that our sin has really been dealt with. He who knew no sin became sin, and the wages of sin is death, and we know that Jesus received those wages because he died. But if that's true, we can be certain of the rest of 2 Corinthians 5.21, since Jesus is not merely a man but also God. Not only was he able to pay the wages of sin on our behalf, but having paid the wages, he now is able to transfer or impute His righteousness, the righteousness of God Himself to us. And so now we who trust in Him fully benefit from every aspect of this transaction. Our sins have been imputed to Him. His righteousness has been transferred to us. We are forgiven and free and counted as righteous. And no one who is righteous perishes in hell. He keeps all His bones. Not one of them is broken. If you're here this morning trusting in Jesus then know that God actually sees you not as somebody to judge, but as someone he has already received into his household as a beloved child. 
He looks upon you, Christian brother, Christian sister, and he sees the perfect, spotless righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, I know that is hard for us to believe sometimes because we think about everything that we have done, all the bad things that we have done long ago and, and, and even today. But the good news of the gospel is that he does not count your sins against you because he has already counted them against Jesus, the man who died as your Passover lamb. And if you're sitting here this morning and you have not yet believed, know that John has written these things in chapter 19 so that you may believe. That's his purpose. He, he tells us that. Jesus has come to be a substitute, a representative for sinners like you. He hung, he was pierced, he was laid in a tomb for sinners. Jesus came to this world to be a corpse, to lay lifeless and cold in that tomb. Jesus' dead body is the final witness the irrefutable evidence that he indeed has paid the wages of sin for all who believe. He came to be a corpse, but not forever. And as we will see next week, Jesus' resurrection is the irrefutable evidence that his payment was received and accepted by God. And so if you need further hope, if you need further encouragement, If you need further help believing, come back next week for the rest of the story as we celebrate the victory. Let's pray.